I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Ghana people, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In this episode of our weekly series where journalists from the Cosmos Newsroom bring you their highlights from the week in science, we hear about crows being put to work and the ethics of it, 300-year-old Arctic sponges and a self-cleaning bioplastic modelled on the lotus plant. Our journalists today are Lauren Fuge, Amalia Hart and Ellen Fidian. Well, Lauren, last week we were all intrigued by a new story about this Swedish startup that wanted to employ crows. What did they want the crows to do? Yeah, it was a really interesting and strange idea. They wanted to train crows to pick up cigarette butts off the streets of a Swedish city. They thought it would cut costs and crows are pretty smart. So they designed this machine that would give crows peanuts every time they dropped in a piece of litter like a cigarette butt. But that does make me think, I mean, will this distract the crows from their normal wild behaviours? Yeah, that's what I immediately thought as well. And so I got in touch with a couple of bird experts um, to ask them that question. I was like, is this actually a good idea? Like, sure, crows are really intelligent and you can train them just like you could train, say, a dog or something like that. But surely giving them food as a reward for like picking up rubbish is actually going to interfere with their actual wild lives because they're using wild crows in this experiment. It's not like they've got some trained ones from a zoo or something. But the experts said that, yeah, it probably would interfere with their wild behaviours. Like they're spending time doing unnatural jobs that it might take away from socialising, foraging, even vigilance behaviours. And presumably there are health effects as well. Yeah, well, I mean, they're picking up cigarette butts, right? And cigarettes aren't good for humans. So there's a lot of... It feels kind of like we're outsourcing, like, bad behaviour for them. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't think cigarettes contain enough nicotine or other chemical chemical compounds um, for them to kind of ingest it in kind of one sitting, you know, when they're just picking one up and putting it in the machine. But over a long term, you have to wonder what the health effects are going to be. And I mean, the experts that I was talking to didn't know what the health effects were going to be, but they said that this is definitely something the company should be looking into. Like if they don't know whether or not it's going to negatively impact the crows, they should be doing studies. They should be, I don't know, like taking blood samples and sending them to to labs to get a toxicology report. And some of the experts even called for like an ethical oversight for this. Like what they asked, like what animal ethics agency is even overseeing this? I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, it seems like a bit much to get crows addicted to nicotine. But why, so why aren't they employing humans to do this instead? Seems like the simple answer. Yeah, I think because humans are more expensive and they wanted to cut cut costs by employing crows. Um, But that, it brings up more and more ethical issues, right? Like, like you were saying, Ellen, like, why should we feel okay about making an animal do our dirty work? Like, how can they even properly consent to this, you know? I don't know. I feel like it's a really tricky territory to get into because we don't recognize animals, even intelligent ones as kind of sentient beings and definitely not in a legal sense. So how can you, how can you say that, you know, like animals have a right to not be exploited in this way? And the, the bird experts I was talking to, I spoke to uh, Kaylee Swift from the university of Washington and also Gisela Kaplan from the university of new England here in Australia. And both of them were really expressing concerns about this and saying that, like we should be thinking about the way we 
interact with animals. We should be thinking about, you know, potentially stopping exploitation of wildlife through legal means, like enacting bylaws and such, and giving legal protection to birds, such as crows that are really intelligent, um, so we don't feel like we're entitled to use them in any way that we want. So I think it's a really, it was a really interesting story to dig a bit deeper into and kind of understand, I guess, the attitudes that, that lead to startups like this. On the surface, it seems really like, oh, crows have jobs. How cute. But uh, actually, the, the crow economy is less important than the crow ecology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Ellen, you had a really interesting story this week as well. You wrote a story about radar. I certainly did, yes. So a group of researchers based at the University of Sydney Sydney, have figured out a way to make um, much more high-resolution radar than normal. Okay. Why is it hard to make radar more precise? So basically the way radar works, it sends out a radio wave, bounces off an object, uh, you time the amount of time it takes to bounce back off the object, and that tells you how far away the object is. And using like traditional radio wave generators, you can get it to sort of resolutions of about 500 megahertz, which according to the researcher I spoke to from the University of Sydney, can sort of tell you the difference between a big plane and a small plane, a submarine, a storm, that's how the BOM um, tracks rain, that sort of thing. Um, But it can't really get more precise than that. To do that, you need much more elaborate electronics. So you have to have these really, really high electronic devices and it's just really not financially feasible. Um, People prefer to use different techniques like LiDAR and cameras if they want to see stuff in higher resolution than radar gives them because it's just a lot cheaper. And why would a more precise radar be useful? I mean, couldn't you just use a camera? So the researchers who've developed this radar, they figured out this, uh, what they call a photonics trick to make um, low electronics radar, which allows them to do it without all of the expense. A, it's cheaper than a camera, but B, it doesn't carry the same sorts of privacy issues that a camera does. So it sees with a resolution of a couple of centimetres. That's really useful for stuff like, say, tracking someone's chest, moving up and down, whether or not they're breathing. So you can use it as a life monitor. But because it's centimetres, it's not millimetres, it doesn't pick up facial data. So you can't identify people. So these researchers think they've got a couple of different uses for their really high-resolution radar. But they think the most useful one would be monitoring life signs in hospitals because it doesn't invade people's privacy, but it does check whether or not they're breathing. Currently, the best way to do that is to attach a strap to someone's chest, which is really like physically uncomfortable. And if you're using it on, well, you you basically can't use it on burn victims and you also can't use it on infants because there's nowhere to like get the strap that's safe for either of those populations. Yeah. I mean, speaking of safety, is this new radar tech dangerous in any way? Or anything we have to be anything you have to be cautious about? Um, no, because it's using radio waves. Um, the only real risk is uh, because it uses waves that are similar to the ones that like telephone towers produce, so like 4G, 5G. Um, so you just have to be careful about the frequencies they're using so that it doesn't interfere with mobile phone signals. But it's exactly the same as mobile phone signals, so it's completely safe. That said, obviously, because it's something that they want to use on humans, the researchers trying to move on to um, animal trials now. 
they wanted to test it on a cane toad um, because cane toads apparently breathe with a similar like level of movement to humans so it'd be a good way to test it um yeah I know I know apparently they looked they read this paper about um a bullfrog where they used a bullfrog as a human proxy for breathing and they were like we could do that with cane toads but it turns out it's really hard to get a cane toad into a lab because there are all of these like ecological considerations and then also all of these like considerations for the welfare of toad and all of the regulations around handling it and stuff so they're hoping to do that um and then the researcher i spoke to said assuming that works and like it will because there's no actual risk to the toad they're going to move on to humans by the end of the year assuming they get all of the like human ethics approvals through and my question is kind of given how hard it is to get cane toads into a lab how do you think this is going to go when you actually want to test it on people but i'm excited to see how that happens when it happens i love the idea of a toad as a proxy for a human Oh, it's brilliant. Apparently um, they're considering changing to like a sheep or possibly a rat. It's There are all sorts of animals that could sub in for humans in breathing, but um, cane toads was the ones that they really wanted to look at because of the way they um, move. Interesting. So Amalia, you wrote an interesting story this week about bioplastics. Yeah, so a team of researchers from RMIT have developed this new bioplastic that's sturdy and it's compostable and it cleans itself and it's modelled on the lotus leaf, which is pretty neat. So they think that it could be used or really useful in food and, you know, takeaway packaging, the packaging of food in supermarkets. And it's pretty great because, you know, plastic waste is this huge problem, but we need something that you can produce, you know, industrially and at scale to replace it. I feel like I should know this, but can you just remind me what exactly is a bioplastic? Yeah. So a bioplastic is a plastic material produced from renewable sources, biomass sources like vegetable fats, oils, cornstarch, straw, wood chips, sawdust. I think this one is produced from starch and not all bioplastics are biodegradable, but a lot of them are. But a lot of bioplastics that are degradable, they require industrial intervention to degrade. Whereas this one, can just you chuck it in the soil you bury it in your backyard and it degrades and it does that because it incorporates these polymers called and i'm probably going to butcher the name but non-isocyanate polyhydroxyurethanes and they're they massively accelerate the biodegrade biodegradation process when they're incorporated into the bioplastic so based on a lotus how are lotuses self-cleaning why were they interested in lotuses for this yeah lotuses are very cool Um, their leaves are basically almost impossible to get dirty. They have this really water repellent surface, which at the micro level is composed of these tiny little pillars, which are topped with like a waxy layer. And so if a droplet of water lands on a lotus leaf, it remains a droplet and then it will just roll off compelled by gravity or the wind. And then that droplet will sweep up any dirt en route. So it's just like this pristine surface. So the researchers decided to mimic that and they made this plastic of starch and and nanoparticles and the surface was imprinted with a pattern that really mimicked those columns on the lotus leaf and then it was coated with this protective layer of pdms which is a silicon based organic polymer yeah and it repels liquids and dirt really effectively and it can retain those self-cleaning properties even if it's been scratched or it's exposed to heat which obviously makes it really convenient for you know the food industry so watch this space could be cool that's really when, cool. when do we get self-cleaning Tupperware? When's it going to happen? Oh, I don't know. I hope soon. <laughs> I'm sick of my Tupperware turning, you know, an awful red whenever I make spaghetti. So, <laughs> And 
to round off with a really fantastic story, Lauren, you've got to tell us about these Arctic sponges beneath sea ice. How big, how old, and where are they found? Oh my God. This was my favorite story of the week. I was so excited when we saw this story come up. Okay. So basically scientists have found giant sponges living deep below the like Arctic ocean that's permanently ice covered. And they're not only just living below this icy ocean, but they're also growing on the peaks of extinct underwater volcanoes. I think those are just like the coolest words in the same sentence that I've heard all month. So I was extremely excited when the story came up. And basically they found them when they were on this this research expedition aboard a German research vessel called uh, Polarstern. And they were towing like cameras behind the research vessel so they could see the the sea floor and like the sea mounts, like the underwater mountains. And they found these like sponge ecosystems on tops of these underwater mountains. And they're pretty big. They're, they can be up to about a meter in diameter. And they're about 300 years old, they found out. And they're just like, oh, they're just so cool. That's extremely cool. I love these Arctic sponges. They're kind of the same, the same vibe for me, I think, as the ice fish story that I covered a few weeks ago, where the same research vessel actually a few years previously found like a 60 million ice fish nests between um, beneath the sea in Antarctica. This has the same vibe. I'm just really excited by finding things in the ocean. It's amazing. Do sponges move around like ice fish? I don't even know what a sponge looks like. I mean, I know what a sponge looks like, but you know. (laughs) This is not like your kitchen sponge, though it is like a little bit similar. Um, They're kind of like roundish creatures that are a little bit soft. They stay on one place um, and they don't move around like fish do. They're just kind of static. So they're just living statically on these undersea volcanoes. And they live to be 300 years old. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Especially for such like a cold environment I guess um and that's what the researchers were wondering they're kind of like how did these sponges like how do they survive these conditions because sponges are filter feeders usually the sponges all over the world um from like tropical areas there's some I think there's some in Antarctica as well like in cold regions but they're usually filter feeders so they eat little things that float down to them through the water column But if the ocean is like covered in ice and there's not much food floating down to the sponges, these researchers were like, well, how do they actually eat? And so they did some microbial analyses and they found that these sponges feeding on extinct ecosystems. So let me explain that. So sponges are usually in like a symbiotic relationship with lots of little microorganisms that live on them. And these little microbes can help the sponges eat. It can help extract nutrients from the environment and like feed it to the sponges and also do other cool things like produce antibiotics that look after the sponges as well. But these microorganisms on the Arctic sponges are helping them feed off not out of the not out of the water column, but literally off of like this mat that they are growing on. And this mat is kind of like the fossilized remnants of an extinct ecosystem. So they think that thousands of years ago, outgassing from the undersea volcanoes supported a much richer ecosystem than they see today, like with lots of different kinds of animals. But most of those have now gone extinct and the sponges are kind of like the leftover the leftovers of that ancient ecosystem. And they have adapted with their little microbes in order to feed off of the remains of that ecosystem, which I think is pretty hardcore. That's pretty spooky. That's wild. What if they run out of remains? That's a great question. And I'm wondering whether the researchers are going to look at that next. <laughs> I wonder how much there is down there. Then it might be curtains to our 
300-year-old sponges. And please don't quote me on this. I mean, I'm in the podcast, so it's too late. But I'm pretty sure there's like Greenland sharks that live to be like 500 years old. I'm going to have to fact check that. But aren't, like, I feel like Arctic things live for a long time. I Maybe be- we shouldn't be surprised about these sponges then. Maybe we should have predicted these sponges. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. That's just a Wikipedia thing, so I could be wrong. <laughs> we need to fact check you on that, actually. Yeah. yeah. I just have, according to the US government, at least 250 years over 500 years. Wait, what? That's the, the National Ocean Service of the US government says that Green, Greenland shark lives at least 250 years and maybe over 500. So they're really giving the sponges a run from their money, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, uh, yeah, watch this space. I'm sure they're going to be doing more research about Arctic sponges, and I will be there for it, to be honest. I'll be ready. Oh, I know you will. Possibly in the Arctic. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my preference. If everything goes to plan. I want to be scuba diving with the sponges. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you will also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's podcast featured Lauren Fuge, Amalia Hart and Ellen Fidian. Thank you.